Hey everyone, it's David Pluff. Happy 2020. Hard to believe we're in a new decade and the election uh, seems even more real now uh, that we're in 2020. Um, the real part of the campaign, I think, begins now in the Democratic primary. Candidates basically in a sprint to the Iowa caucuses. Uh, we still don't know when when, and if the impeachment uh, proceedings are going to happen in the Senate, as we've talked about previously. That's going to have a, a pretty big impact on the race, certainly will affect the candidates who are in the Senate, may affect the, the next debate um, that's going to occur uh, in mid-January in Iowa. So, um, you know, for those of you that are paying close attention to this race, just get smart about Iowa, the, where the candidates are spending their time, the Des Moines Register and other outlets uh, have great infographics and, and data on that, um, the ads that these candidates are running, the arguments that they're making. Um, my experience in Iowa is, 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 is now people out there are going to make, begin to make firm decisions. Um, most of them won't make it until the last seven or 10 days, but, but every day now you're going to have people signing up for real with candidates. Uh, and, you know, that may be reflected in, in both some of the poll numbers, but some of the political coverage. So um, this gets um, incredibly uh, ferocious right now because, um, you know, the, it, it may be that somebody can, uh, woe, you know, really underperform in Iowa and somehow miraculously uh, scramble back and become the nominee, but it's unlikely. doesn't mean someone has to win, but they have to do well enough, and I think that differs for each candidate what that means, uh, to move on. Uh, and so I think one of the challenging things about this period, though, is um, while you've got Iowa right in front of you and you want to spend as much time on the ground in Iowa in front of voters because that's still the best way to to close the sale with somebody, uh, you know, you do have these other states. Um, and so folks are going to have to be bouncing between Iowa and New Hampshire, maybe a little bit in South Carolina. Uh, and then, of course, all these campaigns are dealing with the challenge of March, which is people start voting uh, in some of these states that that are um, occurring in March and February. So, you know, do they go spend time there? Uh, are they how much of their resources from a financial standpoint and a staff standpoint are they allocating there? So really fascinating chess match beginning to occur, which is how are you spending your time and your money? Uh, even though you've got Iowa looming, um, you know, I think you've got to pay attention to some of these other states. And, and those will be some of the more challenging um, decisions um, that the campaigns have to make. Um, we see um, probably a lot of you have seen this on your phones or tablets or, or even your televisions, Michael Bloomberg continuing to spend an enormous amount of money. Um, I think it'll be really interesting uh, to see if that um, moves his numbers, um, you know, uh, in, in the primary, but also is it having any effect on Trump? Uh, I think Democrats hope it is. Um, I think we're all glad to see some of the spending happening against Trump, some really smart ads, uh, but I think we'll learn from what effect there is and what effect there isn't um, um, to help educate us in terms of what our pathway is to winning enough votes in enough states to, to get to 270 uh, electoral votes. So buckle up. Um, I think that uh, um, we are soon um, getting to the point where what pundits think uh, and even what polls say are less important. We're going to have actual uh, votes uh, on the scoreboard. Um, and, and this is going to happen enormously quickly. Um, think about it. I mean, 60 days from now, we're on the doorstep of, of Super Tuesday. Um, basically, 75 days from now, most of the country will have voted and most of the delegates will have been awarded. We don't know whether we'll have a clear nominee at that point or whether we'll be down to two or even three candidates. But, you know, this race will shake out. Uh, and so I would encourage you to spend 
you know, a lot of you are supporting candidates now and do all you can to, to help them in the primary. Um, but for those of you that just want to follow the race closely, um, every day matters now. Um, and that's one of the challenges for these campaigns is are you maximizing every day, you know, the number of supporters you're putting in the bank, the amount of money you're raising, uh, the arguments you're making and, and, and making those more crisp and effective. So um, this could not be uh, more pressure packed right now. Um, now, now that we're into January. Um, but again, uh, just think about that. I mean, 75 days from now, um, we may know who our nominee is. If not, we'll know who's kind of down to the final two or three. And the contours of the general election may become a little bit more clear. So uh, the time for pontificating uh, is is quickly coming to a close, um, which I think we can all be grateful for. Uh, my guest today is somebody a lot of you are familiar with. You probably follow him on social media. Uh, and read his coverage in the New York Times religiously. Jonathan Martin, he's the chief national political correspondent for the New York Times, um, came there from Politico where he was in 2008 when he covered our race, the first Obama race. Uh, Jonathan is is a student of political history. Um, He's somebody who knows um, these states inside and out. Um, He knows delegates inside and out. Um, and he's covering this race probably more closely than any journalist uh, in the country. So um, a lot of you, uh, he's a window into the race, and I think he'll be spending a lot of his time in January in Iowa, but also with an eye towards the other three early states as as well as the March state. So I'm I'm eager to talk to him really about um, how he views the race, but more importantly, how he's going to cover the race and how the Times is going to cover the race, issues like delegates, um, issues like how they're covering what's happening online, not just what's happening uh, on the ground, um, how they think about um, uh, the percentage of the time they're going to cover Iowa versus the other early states, how much time are they going to spend uh, covering some of those big March states. And then also, you know, we've got a general election looming. So how does the Times and, and Jonathan uh, think about uh, covering the general election uh, during this period? So I think it's going to be a fascinating conversation with Jonathan. Um, hopefully you'll benefit from it and learn about how the Times uh, is thinking about the Democratic primary now as we're moving into 2020. Jonathan Martin, thank you for being with us. Thanks, David. So, Jonathan, a lot of people around the country who are going to be following this primary carefully, particularly here in the closing weeks, are going to be doing so through your writing and reporting. So I'm really interested to get your sense. Um, you know, it's January 2nd. We're, uh, you know, just a little more than a month from Iowa. As you think about how you're covering uh, this race in January, the Democratic primary race, like, is it mostly Iowa? Are you also going to be, you know, looking carefully what's happening in New Hampshire, South Carolina? Just take people into your thought process about what really matters from your perspective. Well, first of all, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Uh, I've been enjoying your interviews. Um, the last few months with uh, the various uh, campaigns and uh, their staffs. Um, so I think in January, especially as we move deeper into the month, it will be more Iowa-centric. The caucuses are on February 3rd, so certainly um, I think it's going to be a sort of Iowa-focused month, especially um, as we move towards uh, towards the caucus day. But that said, this is such a fascinating race because you do have different early states that are, for now at least, uh, indicating different preferences. So I think physically I'll be in Iowa uh, a good deal, but I'm going to be keeping a, a close eye on New Hampshire, Nevada, and South Carolina, in part because I'm curious for how they respond to movements real and perceived in Iowa. You know, 
Democratic voters uh, um, are so engaged, they're so informed, uh, and there are not walls between these states that they are carefully watching what's happening in the other states. So just to take one example, you know, I'm curious if, you know, the success of uh, Mayor Pete um, so far in Iowa is going to start moving his numbers in these other states, especially Nevada and South Carolina. You know, if he is still leading there in the surveys that we assume will be coming out in January, it's been a while since we had some polls, is that going to move his numbers in Nevada and South Carolina? So I think it's important to sort of focus on what's happening in Iowa, but not be totally blind uh, to what's happening beyond there. Right. So a big part of January is going to be um, assuming it actually gets scheduled, the impeachment trial, which, you know, will um, force a lot of the people running for president on our side back into Washington. You know, you've obviously probably spent some time thinking about what that means to the race and your coverage. Any thoughts you want to share with folks? Yeah, I mean, I kind of struggle with this, David, because my initial assumption is that, you know, any days that these candidates are out of Iowa uh, is going gonna, is gonna to hurt them because they're going to get less time with voters and, and get less media coverage on the ground there. Um, but at the same time, you know, increasingly uh, these campaigns uh, are not playing out, uh, you know, at individual events. They're, they're playing out uh, at a higher level in terms of national and social media consumption. So, you know, if you're a senator, can you force your way into the Iowa conversation by really taking a high-profile role in Washington during the Senate trial? I think about Amy Klobuchar, for example, who really needs a good performance in Iowa to break out of this race. You know, on the one hand, she probably would prefer to be uh, working uh, Iowa crowds, especially in rural Iowa, where she's hoping to make uh, some real progress. But at the same time, would Amy Klobuchar get the same press coverage in Iowa, if you've given her some people off, you know, four or five events on a given day in mid-January, as will if she, you know, takes a sort of command performance uh, during the Senate trial and then is all over cable news that night talking about what happened during that day in the Senate. Uh, I just don't know the answer to that. So what's fascinating about that, of course, is that you have Sanders, Warren, Booker, Klobuchar, I guess we throw Michael Bennett in there. It's almost like a campaign within a campaign, right? Like who can rise, uh, you know, during that impeachment process and benefit most from it. It's fascinating. I don't know if it's good for the process, but it's what they have to do. And by the way, David, you know, before Kamala Harris dropped out, you know, her last-ditch plan, according to her own advisors, was she really wanted to kind of own the impeachment uh, debate. I uh, wanted to sort of dominate that, that many primary that you just referenced. And they had high hopes that you know, her prosecutorial chops would shine through and it should be on cable every night, sort of talking about what happened uh, that day. So, yes, campaigns, candidates are talking about this. They are, they are gaming out how to make the best of the situation with being pinned down in Washington. And you should be assured that they're going to be all over social media trying to get on cable news. Um, trying to get traditional media coverage day in, day out while they're in D.C. Uh, and hoping that that can translate back to Iowa, where, you know, Mayor Pete and Joe Biden will be spending the bulk of their time. 
Right. So you made an interesting point, uh, which was consistent with something. When I talked to General Mally Dillon, somebody you know well who ran Beto O'Rourke's race most recently, you know, she said on reflection, it was just more of a national primary than they had imagined, right? So it, it's, it's, in her view, it's harder these days to just go bunker in a state and, and do well there. Now, I think Klobuchar is testing that proposition. But, you know, you've covered these now, um, eight, um, both sides, 12, the Republican primary, 16, both sides. Now this one, I mean, uh, reflect on that a little bit. I mean, is that just the reality, which is, you know, we can't, you know, whether it's Jimmy Carter or even Barack Obama, like that path is not available anymore. David, I think Ron Brownstein made uh, a really salient point on this, and I can't remember when it was, but if you look at Jimmy Carter's uh, national numbers versus his Iowa numbers, and then I think even Gary Hart in 84, national numbers versus, I think it was New Hampshire numbers in the case of Hart, there was a vast gulf uh, between the two that you just don't see anymore. Um, you know, these candidates nowadays, yes, some are doing better in early states than their, their national polling uh, suggests. Certain Mayor Pete is the most obvious example of that. But it's not the kind of delta that we have seen in years past because, again, like I said, you know, Iowa and New Hampshire are not walled off. They're consuming the same national social media as voters in the other 48 states are. And one of the most striking things and covering these campaigns as a reporter is that every four years you get more and more of voters who come up to candidates and reference seeing them somehow uh, on national media, on some kind of a national show, um, these days talking about a tweet or um, a online video. Um, so, you know, it is a more difficult task now than it was earlier to just sort of plant yourself in a state and try to um, uh, become the Iowa candidate or the New Hampshire candidate. And even Senator Klobuchar, uh, who has been to all 99 Iowa counties, she's right now in New Hampshire because she believes that even if she does go in Iowa, she has to have something going on beyond Iowa to be a viable candidate. And that's one of the most striking elements of this cycle. We have not seen a candidate do the kind of all-in approach that we've seen in pretty much every past primary. Uh, going back quite a few years, there was always a candidate, David, who would do the all-in-Iowa or the all-in-New Hampshire. And we're just not seeing that this time around. Right. It's fascinating. So you and I have spent some time through the years talking about um, the importance of South Carolina. I think it's complicated this year a little bit by the Bloomberg phenomenon, which we'll talk about in a minute. But do you? what's your view of that? I mean, ultimately, Iowa is the first proving ground. We've got New Hampshire, Nevada. But do you think the, the field likely thins down, let's leave Bloomberg aside for a minute, to two or three real contenders post-South Carolina? Or could this be the one exception where, you know, you got four or five people who are still kicking around with some at least notional claim that they could win the nomination? I think a lot of that will hinge on what happens in Iowa and New Hampshire. I, I think you've got a split decision coming out of the first two states, or even the first three states, if you want to toss Nevada in there. I think it's very likely that you could have four to five candidates still in the race after after South Carolina. I think it just depends on what is happening initially. Think about this for a minute. You've got three candidates with significant resources who are going to be able to stay in the race if they have uh, early success, or even if they just do okay initially, uh, Warren, Sanders, and Buttigieg. Then you, you add in Biden, 
who by all accounts is having a better quarter of fundraising right now, plus has a super PAC that can help him stay alive. That's four candidates. And you haven't even mentioned Bloomberg yet, who obviously can sell finance. Uh, so that's a lot of candidates, David, who have either the personal money or the fundraising capacity to stay viable um, after the first dates. You know, the Gephardt line, uh, one of your old clients, I think, you know, he said, uh, campaigns for president don't end. They run out of money. And that is typically the fate. That's why Kamala Harris dropped out of the race. Uh, but that's never going to happen with Senator Sanders. Uh, Warren seems to be fairly strong on money, all the uh, strongest Sanders. Uh, Buttigieg certainly has got strong fundraising. And Biden obviously has got access to establishment donors, and Bloomberg can sell funds. So, you know, which of them is going to run out of money? Now, you can say, well, if they're in fourth or fifth in Iowa, then it's going to create challenges. Yeah, it would. But it, they have enough funding to stay in the race through February and into Super Tuesday. Yeah. So, I mean, what, what's interesting about this is we could be in a situation post, you know, that critical day of, of March 17th where you've got Arizona, Florida, Illinois, Ohio, where maybe it's clear that someone's going to, you know, maybe they don't have a majority of the delegates, but they're going to they're going to win the nomination. And, you know, people are going to have to get out, not because they're out of money, <laughs> just because, you know, it's clear. And, you know, the question, will people behave differently this time because Trump's on their side? I don't know. So how do you, um, you know, you've obviously covered Bloomberg's entry into the race. A lot of the political coverage uh, so far has been actually just focused on his spending, which is important to cover. But as you're spending more time in Iowa, covering Iowa with an eye towards these other early states in February, what's your thought about how to cover Bloomberg? Or is it really like his moment comes sort of post-South Carolina? I mean, uh, you know, unless he like moves up to 30 in the national polls, which I think is is unlikely. Uh, how do you think about that? Yeah, I, mean, I think the story of Bloomberg so far has been slow but steady uh, gains in national polling and some of the... Um, you know, post-early states. Um, and, you know, he's not surging, but he obviously the spending has helped him. But, David, you know, my view of Bloomberg is that he effectively is running as a Biden backup plan. Now, he wouldn't say that directly, and his people wouldn't say that directly. But if you just look at what has happened in the evolution of Bloomberg's interest in running, that's basically what this is. Look, he didn't get in the race earlier this year because they took a lot of polls and they found that, that Biden was effectively blocking their, their path. And so he did not run uh, and defer to Biden. Well, flash forward to October of this year, Biden is struggling to raise money. His polling isn't great. He's being hit hard by Trump on the Ukraine issue. And Warren has moved in both national and state polling uh, in the primary. Enter Michael Bloomberg, right? So I guess what I'm saying is, is if Biden stabilizes in Iowa, and if the Iowa Democrats have a John Kerry 2004 moment where they say, uh, I've got some questions about, uh, about Biden, but look, we've just got to be Trump. And in my view, this is the Iowa voter, he's the guy to do it. And Biden is first or a close second in Iowa. That could really change the race. That could really change Bloomberg's calculations about the race. Is Michael Bloomberg still going to want to be, um, you know, a hard-charging candidate if Joe Biden is winning three of the four, first four states? And I think that's going to shape some of the coverage, too, is what is Bloomberg's role 
going into Super Tuesday with a more formidable Joe Biden, if that is the case. Now, if that's not the case, David, if Biden does, does struggle and does stumble, I think the Bloomberg candidacy looks very different. I think they tell you the same thing. They are looking for a split decision in the early states. Um, I think their preference is either a split decision or Sanders Warren coming out of the early states with a head of steam. In either scenario, Bloomberg, I think, is a more viable candidate. But he might be, and certainly in the Sanders and Warren scenario. But if, if Biden has struggled significantly to the degree that it looks like he just can't put it together or doesn't win South Carolina, which I think is a is, is necessity, almost by definition, Mayor Pete has not fallen apart, right? And so, uh, you know, I just – I don't think it's just Biden kind of, you know, in Bloomberg's way. I think it could be Mayor Pete too, uh, maybe not, you know, quite as extensively. So so you're not running one of these campaigns, Jonathan. I mean, you, you probably pay as much attention to the calendar and delegates as, as the folks who are. So as you think about March, both in terms of how you're going to cover that, because what's fascinating is I'd assume some of these candidates are going to have to spend time in some of the March states in February. So they're jetting from Nevada or New Hampshire or South Carolina to them, but they're also spending money. Voters are voting where that's allowed early. Just talk to me about March a little bit. And and I've always thought that, that if, Mar- if Super Tuesday um, is not um, sort of determinative, um, you know, I've always thought that day of March 17th where we've got Arizona, Florida, Illinois, and Ohio could be. But what's your, you know, what's your view of, of March? So what I'm curious about is, let me put it this way. There are two things that we in the press often watch when it comes to candidates. We watch their feet and we watch their bank accounts. And that's to say, don't listen to what they say. Watch where they're spending their money and watch where they're spending their time. Because that's the more revealing indicator than what their rhetoric actually is. So that is to say, you know, which of the candidates are spending money in the March states? Where in the March states are they spending the most? And where, time-wise, are they going to be? You know, after New Hampshire, do some of these candidates start dividing their time between Super Tuesday states and Nevada and South Carolina? Or do they just try to get wind in Nevada and South Carolina and hope that success there we get success in Super Tuesday states. I think that's one of the big questions, um, especially for a candidate like Bernie Sanders, who I think has lesser hopes for South Carolina than he does for a state like California on Super Tuesday. So if you're Bernie Sanders, you want to downplay expectations in South Carolina by spending a good chunk of the back half of February in a California or a Texas. Um, so I think that's going to be one of the most interesting questions is, especially after New Hampshire. You know, where do these candidates spend their time and money? Right. No, very smart. So one of the, I think, big questions in this primary, as it is in any primary, but I think particularly in this one where you've got so many candidates, you know, who is actually going to go from, you know, where they are today, 15, 18, 20, who's got the ability to grow to, let's say, the mid-30s, and ultimately maybe they get into the 40s, and that becomes our nominee. So we have polls, and, you know, thank goodness soon we're actually going to have votes, <laughs> you know, uh, to, to measure. The, but as you think about that right now before we get to Iowa, to me that is a critical question, um, is how do you think about or maybe how do you capture in your reporting or writing somebody who's showing signs of growing outside of their um, existing political base? Well, I think— one of the things that Warren has going for her is that 
she is an acceptable second choice for a good chunk of the Democratic coalition. And uh, that could play a, a pivotal role, especially in Iowa, where, as you know, and many of your uh, listeners know, if a candidate fails to get 15% at a caucus, then the voters who supported that candidate can regroup and support somebody else. So that second choice becomes very pivotal in Iowa. Um, so I think she's somebody that has the potential to grow her coalition because polling suggests that she is broadly acceptable to Democratic primary voters. David, the challenge she has is that she can't consolidate the left um, because Bernie Sanders is, is, is in the race and <laughs> has a lot of money uh, and has really loyal followers. And I think one of the, the most crucial moments of this race is Bernie Sanders has a heart attack in Las Vegas. He stays in the hospital for, for much of a week, but he does not quit the race and endorse Warren, which I think many people would have thought a 78-year-old candidate would do, sort of pass the baton type moment. Instead, he stays in the race, and he then gets the endorsement of uh, AOC, and that's a powerful one-two combination that helped him, I think, especially with uh, the progressive wing of the party. And that moment, I think, uh, denying Warren the opportunity to consolidate the left, um, which I think she could have done, which would have put her probably above 30 in Iowa, um, I think uh, is a crucial moment. Um, so that's a long answer to your question. I think, I think Warren has certainly the capacity, although it's complicated with Bernie staying in the race. Um, I think Pete um, has the possibility, uh, but his challenge is can he get beyond uh, you know, white voters. And I think so far he has not proven uh, an ability to do that. Bernie similarly has a real challenge with the kind of moderate wing of the party. Biden got a challenge with the more progressive wing of the party. So I think Warren is probably the short answer to your question, but her challenge is obviously Bernie's thing in the race. Although if Biden does do well early, it seems to me he's got the ability to add to his existing, you know, base um, you know, even if he is not the second choice Warren is, he's, he's acceptable to a large majority of the party. And I, th- I think, Dave, I think Biden would do well with a lot of the Pete supporters. Um, if they see him coming out of Iowa strong, doing well in New Hampshire, uh, I think that a lot of the Pete folks would say, okay, I've got some reservations about, about Joe, he's a little bit old, um, but look, if this is where voters want to go and play it safe, let's, let's just get the over one, you know? Right. So you mentioned the 15% threshold in Iowa. Have you and the Times decided, because for the first time we're going to report the raw vote, you know, the raw support? I know um, what you're going to ask. Yeah. <laughs> so have you guys decided what is going to be, you know, uh, how are you judging this? I've got no announcements today on our, our coverage plans, uh, as they would say from the building of the White House. Um, <laughs> but no, it's an important, it's an important issue here. Uh, you know, for the first time we're actually going to have... Uh, different numbers coming out of Iowa in terms of who did the best on the first balloting in, in these caucuses, uh, and then obviously at the end of the, the night, uh, who did the best, and, and then obviously you're going to have uh, a third um, metric, which is the uh, sort of delegate question. So uh, it is not as clear-cut uh, as it has been in past years, and, and that could create um, I think more uncertainty in terms of who got the biggest bounce out of Iowa. Look, one of the most crucial stories from the 2012 caucuses was that Santorum and Romney were effectively declared co-winners by the Republican Party on, on caucus night, and it turns out that Santorum actually got more uh, got more votes, but that didn't 
come early enough. <laughs> it wasn't clear early enough, and he didn't get the kind of uh, mojo uh, out of there that he could have used. Yeah, we we were hoping Santorum would get that mojo. We we uh, obviously were hoping he'd come out as our opponent uh, as opposed to Romney. So one of the things that turns to me on delegates. So I had Jeff Berman, somebody I know you you know on on the podcast uh, a while ago, and the reaction I got was maybe not surprising, which is uh, a lot of people didn't know much about delegates. They want to learn more. Like, how do you at the Times think about educating your readers about delegates and how they work. Obviously, you guys have done that. I'm just curious, are you going to intensify that? So, look, I think we're going to have a lot of interactive features on the website. I think this is one of those opportunities where we can really shine. We have a a fantastic graphics team, and I think that you're going to see a lot of um, Times website uh, coverage of this battle for delegates, state by state, you know, how many delegates are coming out of each state, how many are coming out of each CD uh, in these states, uh, congressional district. Um, and I think that we're going to be a sort of go-to website where people can check in as this race goes on to see, hey, you know, this Tuesday night, we, we've got X number of states voting. How many delegates are at stake? What's the breakdown by congressional district? So, yes, I think we're going to be very aggressive about uh, explaining how all of this works to readers. That's great. I think that would be a huge uh, contribution. That's a plug for nytimes.com. Yeah, no, no, but it's it's critically important. Um, um, so it is. Yeah, no, no, it, it definitely. And, it's complicated. I mean, as your listeners probably know, because they follow this up closely, um, the delegate distribution is, is shaped by past performance, uh, and the more democratic districts are, then the more delegates they get, and so. The, the heavily African-American and Hispanic districts uh, that tend to be, be more Democratic have more delegates to offer. And that's why uh, you see uh, the Biden campaign making this case that they can go the distance, because their argument is that their strength uh, with communities of color is going to give them a delegate advantage in the long run to other candidates who have more monochromatic support uh, you know, aren't going to be able to win. And that gets in the weeds a little bit. But if this thing does become a delegate war going for six months, that's an important fact. Well, and to your point about why, you know, what matters is not what candidates and campaigns say, but how they're spending their money, where they're spending their time. Hopefully you can, you know, bring that to life as people are, you know, basing their spending and, and uh, time decisions um, down to the CD level, to your point, um, because that's where they're going to ultimately. And they're going to. Right. And I, mean, I think you're going to see candidates who are be very surgical about where they're going. You know, like it's not going to be a surprise to see Bernie Sanders, you know, going to a place like Fresno, for example, which is a media market in California that's hardly the biggest, but it touches multiple congressional districts out there. Right. No, I think that'll be a big contribution. So um, how do you think about through this period, January, February, maybe March, where we are trying to figure out who the Democratic nominee is and all the twists and turns, but we have a general election going on. Um, we have a, a incumbent president who's probably more focused on re-election than anyone ever has been, which is saying something because they all had more than a passing interest, spending a lot of money. You've got Bloomberg running general election-related ads. H- how do you think about, you know, kind of dipping in from time to time in the general election, um, you know, over the next 90 days? I mean, I think that one of the, the best stories in this cycle is how Trump and his allies are trying to play in the Democratic primary and trying to hurt candidates that, you know, they view as more of a threat and probably candidates that, that they would prefer. Um, and 
covering President Trump is that there's no subtext, David. It's all text. <laughs> he's not very he's not very subtle about this stuff. Uh, so we can kind of see what they're up to. Um, and I think like that's going to be a huge factor in it, it, him narrating effectively the Democratic primary and then his, his allies trying to sort of shape the outcome of the race. I think it's going to be one of the great stories of the first half of, of 20. Right, right. Um, so, again, you've covered 8, 12, and 16. What's changed? You talked about it's become, on, on our side this time, more of a national race. You obviously have different social media platforms. As you step back and say, um, you know, how has this race changed, really in the execution of it, um, you know, from your standpoint? Yeah, I, I, I did a story over the summer, or maybe it was late spring, in fact, it was it was the, the end of May, I think, because it was the California State Democratic Convention weekend. And, you know, it's hard to imagine the California Democratic Convention getting the candidates that, that it did this year. Now, part of that's because California moved up to Super Tuesday. Super Tuesday itself is earlier in the cycle. But it's not just that. I, I think that candidates and campaigns, while still spending a lot of time in Iowa and New Hampshire, have increasingly recognized that, that, that they've got to prove their mettle uh, to a national audience. And um, you just have not seen in past cycles the kind of traffic in other states that you have this time around. Um, you've got candidates who want to prove that they can win over the industrial Midwest. So they've campaigned in places like Wisconsin and Michigan uh, and Ohio uh, much earlier than they uh, you know, would have in the past. You've had other candidates who want to prove that they can appeal to communities of color, so places like Memphis or the Mississippi Delta or you know, Hispanic communities in California. Um, so I think it has become more of a national campaign. Uh, and that's in part because of how voters are now getting their information. You know, if you're Elizabeth Warren and you're having a CNN town hall in Jackson, Mississippi, which she did earlier this year, then guess what? Like, that's probably going to be seen by voters in Iowa and New Hampshire. So I think there's, there, is less, there is less of a risk uh, in the eyes of these candidates about venturing beyond the early states. If you just look at just pure time spent on the ground, I went back and checked this. The amount of days that Barack Obama spent in Iowa in 2007 is dwarves the number of <laughs> days that you know, any of the top-tier candidates have spent there this time around. It, it is extraordinarily different. And I think that is the biggest the biggest change. Well, I'd like to think if we were running now, we would have been able to make the appropriate adjustments and still win. But I'm not sure. Like, I think that sort of burrowing in a, in a state served us well, you know, as it did, you know, Jimmy Carter. Ultimately, it helped John Kerry. I mean, I think that is a big fundamental difference. You know, as you think about the general election, Jonathan, so you mentioned, um, you know, Trump, you know, trying to... Uh, help pick his opponent, which I think is a big story. They're doing a lot of organizing and do a lot of spending. But ultimately, this is going to come down to the Electoral College um, battlefield. And so, you know, just like the delegates, you spend you have spent a lot of time thinking about these states. Um, do you think we're more likely to be down to just, you know, it's the, you know, three, we always talk about Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Michigan, maybe with the addition of Arizona, 
maybe the addition of North Carolina? Or do you think the map gets bigger? Do we add on our side, we're trying to get Florida and Georgia on their side. He's trying to get, you know, Minnesota. They talk about New Mexico, Nevada. Do you have an early sense of that? And, and you know I, know, I know a lot of that depends on who our nominee is, but what's your sense of what we're going to be in those like 60? I was going to say, I think part of that will hinge on who the, who the nominee is. Um, well, I think the biggest difference is, is Arizona. Uh, I think that that's going to be a battleground state from day one. I think Hillary Clinton and her campaign will probably tell you this, made a mistake uh, last time around by not going in there sooner and by spending the time in, in, uh, in Ohio that she did. Uh, I think that is the big change. The Arizona is up for grabs uh, at the outset. Both candidates spending a lot of time and, and money there. And I think the flip side of that is uh, Ohio is less of a factor this time around. And uh, maybe Biden would spend some time there. Uh, I, I'm skeptical that uh, after Labor Day um, that um, it's going to be that that uh, important of a state, though, for, for either campaign. Um, look, I think the Minnesota deal, uh, I get why the Trump campaign is, is campaigning there and talking about it and trying to sort of make that their, their addition to the map. Uh, just by pure demographics, there's a lot of non-college white voters there, especially outside of the Twin Cities. Um, so it makes sense. Uh, the challenge, the challenge for them is, uh, you know, how are they going to do much better uh, with college plus voters around the Twin Cities, which was the problem last time. Um, and I, I'm just not sure, given uh, what's happened demographically, uh, that it's going to be easy for him to make much much progress on that front. So look, I think that the core states right now uh, still are Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin. Um, Florida, and then you add Arizona to that to that calculation. Um, I think everything else is a little bit uncertain because we don't know who the nominees are uh, are going to be, and also, frankly, because we don't know what the economy is going to be. Look, nobody knows this better than you. You know, the economy collapses in the fall of '08. That that, that was a huge factor uh, in your election, and you know. Without that happening, do you guys win Indiana and North Carolina, which were the, the two biggest reach states for Barack Obama? Probably not. Yeah. Well, and then, you know, the, it was still, obviously, the unemployment rate was very high. But, you know, it improved through 12, you know, which helped us, obviously, in a huge way. Um, you know, I think we did a good job of setting up the argument with Romney, but without people feeling that economic improvement, the headwinds might have been too much. Yeah. And the other thing that... Um, has gotten talked about of late here a decent amount, and I think it's important. Is, you know, David, how much do events still matter? Uh, putting aside a big dip in the economy, but there has to be a big dip. How much do events still matter? And how much are we just totally locked in? And this could be an entirely separate podcast for a different day, but how much are we just totally locked in to demography as destiny? driving political outcomes, especially when it comes to this president and this presidential election. Um, you know, what could he say or do that would, uh, you know, dramatically change the views of voters that seem to be locked in based on race and education level? Um, again, outside of a big dip in the economy, you know, how much is that movable, David? You know, can he really improve his standing with suburbanites in places like Oakland County, Michigan, uh, outside of Detroit, um, you know, places like suburban Philly, um, you know, is that even feasible at all? Um, and if not, that he's going to have a real challenge. 
Right, which is why I think they're trying to register every possible human being in the world that looks like his base. And so that's, I think, you know, he has not shown the capacity to really grow his, you know, grow his vote share, you know, um, hasn't shown much interest in it. Right, and yeah. that is the biggest difference between this president and every past president running for re-election. The entire point of the first term of every past president is you want to enlarge the coalition that you had from last time. You want to broaden your appeal. Uh, he doesn't really even try to do that. Uh, instead, he just wants to sort of you know, double down on what he already has. But that's a finite amount of voters. Yes, there are more that, that you can get, perhaps through legislation, like you said. But if you're not able to do some persuasion, that's going to be a real challenge, uh, especially if you look at um, you know the, the suburban counties, which are where Democrats won the House last year and where a lot of their candidates for governor won uh, last year. It was on the heels of you know enormous margins in, in suburban counties. Yeah. To me, that's going to be a really interesting thing for for you and the Times, I think, uh, as we get deeper into the year and we begin to see registration figures, is bringing that to life, which are we seeing some numbers in some of these battleground states where Trump is executing, you know, the plan of just adding a bunch of unregistered people like his base? Um, you know, there's some interesting data from even 16, which is there's a belief that same-day voter registration only benefits Democrats. But in some of the counties that Trump really swung dramatically in Wisconsin, you know, there was big same-day registration for him. So I, I think that's important um, for people. So, um, you know, you obviously are spending a lot of time. You're covering, you know, the race entirely. But, you know, you're on the ground. You're you're covering candidates. How do you think about covering what's happening online? Now, some of that's the spend. But just, you know, we saw even in the UK recently, a lot of the misinformation actually wasn't from foreign actors. It was from the conservative party. But how do you guys at the Times think about capturing what's happening um, on these social media platforms and how it's affecting the race? It's a huge focus of what we do, and uh, especially post-2016. We are lucky to have the resources, the manpower to devote a lot of attention. We have a candidate. candidate. We have a correspondent named Matthew Rosenberg, who's a fantastic reporter with a background in national security, who's been writing a lot uh, about online disinformation. And I think you, your listeners should, should follow his byline closely uh, because he's going to be writing a lot of stories about this in 2020, um, just exactly what the parties, what the candidates are doing online. Right. It's a huge story. I mean, it, uh, and look, it's difficult to track, and obviously there are some tools to track, but it is not easy to figure out, you know, exactly um, who, who who is pushing some of this information and, sort of, you know, going back to the, the original sources. But I, I think that we are in a place now where we're probably more empowered than any other news organization to do that kind of reporting. Yeah, well, and, you know, some of the, the data and infographics skill you talked about when you were talking about delegates, I mean, I think somehow bringing on to life what's happening online would be huge. Um, well, Jonathan, I really appreciate you spending time today. Before I let you go, I'm just curious, um, when you're in Iowa, let's start there, like, where's your favorite place to eat? When are you, where, are you, where are you excited when a candidate's going to be, you know, a place where you're like, every four years you get like an awesome meal? That's a, that's a great question. I spent a lot of time thinking about that. Uh, so in 2016, actually, the Times was, was good enough to let me write a story about where to eat in Iowa. Um, and uh, uh, it's actually, in a couple of restaurants, actually posted uh, uh, there. So I, I think I brought some people some, some decent business. Now, 
this is the beauty of, of going to a place like Iowa is that a lot of these towns you can find sort of a local signature dish. I mean, for example, I think Biden was just in Decorah, Iowa, which, as you know, was up towards Wisconsin in the uh, northeastern part of the state. There's a place called Maine's Pizza there. Um, the big delicacy in Iowa is tenderloin sandwiches, um, which are just fantastic, and you can find uh, all over the state. Um, but, no, it is a, a, a great place to find uh, excellent food, um, perhaps not low-calorie food, <laughs> but, but nevertheless excellent food. Uh, and um, I'm looking forward to... Uh, making the most of that uh, and get closer to the focus. Yeah, the nice thing about Iowa is in every county, there's places with just amazingly large, awesome pieces of pie and strong coffee, right? No, exactly. So, actually, I have one other non-food-related question, and I'm just reflecting on as I talk to you here. So, All right, if you insist. Well, you know, I just, I think another thing that might have changed, and maybe this is unique to Trump, right? We have big moments in the campaign. We've got you know, we'll see if we have debates, but assume we have them, we've got the presidential debates. We have, um, you know, the conventions. Um, but, you know, sort of social media, and I think Trump in particular, um, you know, just tries to dominate the oxygen. Um, and how do you guys think about that as it relates to your coverage um, or thinking about the race? Just that I think the the big moments still matter, but they might matter less um, than just the day-to-day, you know, hour-to-hour, you know, battle on social media. Yeah, I mean, that is a question that we struggle with. It's like, not just in terms of the campaign, but I think in terms of the Trump presidency in general, David, it's like, how do you cover uh, somebody who basically is their own, their own press secretary, political director, and sort of online content chief, right? And I think you know, wearing all those hats. And, um, you know, how much are, are people actually paying attention to that? How much coverage should we give amplifying some of what he is doing online? Um, you know, on, on the one hand, he's the president of the United States. You can't ignore what he is doing and saying. Uh, but at the same time, um, some of it does become background noise because it, it, there is just so much of it. Um, and you don't want to give it more sort of attention than perhaps it would otherwise get uh, and deserve. So I think that's a question that we wrestle with uh, all the time. Um, but look, I think if, if he is sort of, you know, intervening in the, in, the, in the primary and trying to, you know, play an active role, I think obviously that's going to get coverage. Um, um, but yeah, I mean, you know, you know day to day, how much do his tweets get attention? I think you just have to take it um, tweet by tweet, you know, and like, you know, what's he saying and, you know, what's the sort of news content of it? And that that's a difficult question. And um, uh, it's not always easy to figure out, but I think that's one of the, the, the issues that we're going to have to address in this campaign, especially as the primary gets going and voters start voting. Well, it's a challenge to me. It's also going to be a challenge for a nominee because I certainly don't have the answers for how do you run against this guy day to day? Yeah, and you've seen, by the way, the candidates take different views on this. I mean, some of them say we got to take him head on and we got to address this stuff. We can't let it go. Others say, you know, just tune it out and, and let's focus on the sort of big issues and don't let Trump drive the campaign. We should be the ones driving the message about Trump's, you know, uh, corruption, as they say, or uh, his self dealing or his extreme policies, um, you know, do you just do that kind of you know, meat potatoes messaging if you're a Democratic candidate, or do you respond to this kind of 
daily bombast and try to engage him on his terms and kind of win the hourly news cycle online and rebut what he is putting out there day by day and hour by hour. That is a crucial question that that your nominee is going to have to confront. Maybe the most important one. Well, Jonathan, we will look forward to seeing your stories and bylines from, you know, the Greenfield, Iowa's and Keene, New Hampshire's and That's right. uh, Greenville, South Carolina's, Elko, Nevada's of the world. Although not many green fields these days in Iowa. It's more like white fields. Yeah, right, right, right. Frozen fields. <laughs> That's very true, man. That is very true. I look forward to seeing you and Iowa getting you out of that cozy studio. And <laughs> yeah, the white field reference does not give me a motivation, but I can't wait to get out there. So I'll, I'll see you on the trail soon. Thanks, pal. Well, as you can hear from Jonathan Martin, someone who knows the country uh, exceedingly well, knows pockets of states exceedingly well, demographics. So Jonathan, obviously, is somebody we're all going to be following closely and and reading his dispatches from the campaign trail uh, with with great eagerness. Um, I thought, A, you know, they're struggling at the times like the campaigns are. You know, how do you apportion your time um, when you've got Iowa going on? So that's going to take most of your time, and it's clearly that's where Jonathan himself is going to spend most of his time. But, you know, you've got New Hampshire, Nevada, and South Carolina. You've got Super Tuesday. Um, So the Times uh, is working through how to cover that. I thought it was interesting. The Times isn't ready yet um, to announce how they're going to cover Iowa because for the first time, um, you know, the raw results are going to be reported uh, as well as the delegates. Um, So I think that... um, uh, you know, it'll be interesting to see, A, what the Times decision is, and B, whether that drives a lot of other media outlets, because you could have three sets of numbers out there. At the end of the night, the delegates, you've got then um, what happens for people who don't get 15%. Um, so, so those set of numbers, which will be a smaller number of candidates getting a higher percentage of the numbers, and then you'll get the the entrance numbers, which is just how many people showed up for each candidate. Um, and so I think that's really, really important. And of course, the individual campaigns will decide what they're going to focus on, <laughs> uh, you know, to whatever they think they serves serves their purpose. But I think it would be useful if there's as much as possible one standard out there, so we can all get a sense of what matters coming out of Iowa and who did well and and who didn't do well and what that means uh, moving forward. Uh, fascinating, you know, to hear how the Times is thinking about covering um, delegates and and trying to, uh, you know, do even more than they've done in the past around data and infographics. I think we'd all benefit uh, from that. Um, and, you know, how they're thinking about, you know, covering what's happening online, both in terms of what the campaigns are doing, but, you know, foreign actors and others who are, who are trying to interfere in our electoral process. So, Hopefully, the Times can do more of that uh, than they did in 16 uh, in more real time um, so we can all get a better sense of that and and folks can react to that. So uh, I think Jonathan is someone, if you're not following him on social media, you should. Um, A lot of you probably read his stories. Um, Those stories are going to get more and more important because I think that um, we've got polls, obviously, but, um, you know, we want to see what's happening on the ground. And uh, particularly, you know, as I talked to Jonathan about who's showing the ability to build on their existing base. Because none of the candidates right now, nationally or in any state, you know, are getting the number they need to become the Democratic nominee. Now, some of that will come to the the eventual nominee because folks drop out. But who's showing the ability to build on what they currently have? 
and I think that that will obviously be clearer as we begin to have states vote. But, you know, we'll begin to get a sense of that in January, I think. Uh, and to me, that is a central question is, is who's showing the ability to broaden out their own existing coalition to what may be a winning coalition um, to become the Democratic nominee. So thanks for tuning in and uh, eager to spend time with you as we get uh, deeper into January and closer to the Iowa caucuses.